Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. This is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. That's you. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, and I am joined by my co-host, Rob Dunham. He certainly is. Yes. (laughs) If you like and enjoy the Film for Fans podcast, help out the podcast. Be, be a good citizen. Help out the podcast. Share, like, subscribe, tell your friends about it. If you do, good things will happen. I don't have any, I don't have anything well, fun. And that's weak. I know. That's weak. I didn't, I didn't do one for this one. Sorry. If you don't, I will come into your house and replace all of your skim milk with water, but you won't know the difference because skim milk is water. I like skim milk. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Hey, don't mess with skim milk. <laughs> Moving on. <Seriously. laughs> this is not a milk podcast, however much we would love to get into that. Uh, it is, however, a podcast about movies, and we have good stuff for you on this particular podcast. We're going to give you a Spider-Man 3 update. Uh, We're going to talk about Paramount Plus a little bit and some of their upcoming plans. Uh, Our favorite movie scores will get thrown back and forth. And the watch list. All right. Rob, you got anything for us before we get started? Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Whole Milk Squad. Drink whole milk. Besides that, nothing else. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I do see signs occasionally, like when I'm driving to Almas Country, that like really advocate for whole milk. And I'm like, do the farmers really care? Does it make, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is in terms of how it affects the farmers. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a milk connoisseur. We need to do more milk research before we talk about it on the podcast again. I know. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to things we know slightly more about. Uh, so let's start out with uh, Spider-Man 3. So Spider-Man 3, it was announced, officially has a title. For real. For sure. Not one of the Ooh. fake titles. And it is Spider-Man No Way From Home. I think and it's just No Way Home. No Way Home, yes. No yeah. Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home. It is continuing along the theme of titles for this particular Spider-Man series that featured the word home, which is interesting. Yeah, Far um, From Home and Homecoming were the other two. Yeah. Previously. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they've gone with that with that theme of home. Um, so Rob, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on Spider-Man 3? Um, first of all, I'm devastated that Home Slice was not the actual real title. And <laughs> For this, real. Movie is now, this movie is now dead to me because it's not named Spider-Man Home Slice. I mean, it pretty much writes itself, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, uh, if you get a chance to look at this article, you will see that Tom Holland just absolutely lies through his teeth about Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire not being in this movie because they are absolutely going to be in this movie 100%. So totally, he's a a lying liar who tells lies. Yes. Do not trust any words that come out of his mouth. Yeah. He never has the real scoop. They just lie to him so that he doesn't, you know, reveal spoilers like he did before. Yeah. So, yeah. 
he he is untrustworthy when it comes to press conferences. He is not he has not attained that level of security at this point. Yeah, just an untrustworthy night monkey, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So Spider-Man 3 apparently is, according to Tom Holland, who we just said we is not to be believed, uh, that this film will be the most ambitious superhero, standalone superhero movie ever made. Well, I hope that part's true. That'd be nice. That would be nice. Yeah. Especially given where the MCU is in, in the face of this, uh, this new wave of MCU. So if they were actually to launch with a great Spider-Man movie, that would be fantastic. Well, No Way Home is supposed to be tied directly into uh, WandaVision, um, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and the new Doctor Strange movie, Multiverse of Madness. So it'll be very interesting to see how all that comes together. And I think No Way Home is kind of just a little tease and hint about the fact that uh, there's going to be some multiverse shenanigans going on. Yeah. And he's going to be not on uh, the regular Earth for some point at some point time probably for an extended amount of time in the movie yeah and i think it's interesting that that they're going to tie in with wandavision because what we've seen so far is we have not seen the tv shows actually play a direct role in upcoming movies um we've seen that with previous um marvel agents of shield for example didn't really have any particular tie-ins to the mcu movies overall i think it's interesting i think Basically, what it says to me is that they're confident enough that enough people have Disney Plus and care about it in order to watch the series that they can legitimately use it as a movie tie-in. Um, so I think that's fascinating to see how much that matters. Like, will you actually need to have seen WandaVision to understand something that's happening in this movie? Because that would be that would be pretty that would be pretty groundbreaking in order to do that. And this is a movie podcast, but if you haven't seen WandaVision, shame on you. Go watch it immediately because it's one of the best TV shows I've ever seen, I think. Um, it's just brilliant. And it has raised, I think, just the investment of the Marvel uh, IP and money has kind of raised the bar. I think we've seen the bar being raised across the gamut of television production over the last few years. Because it, it doesn't feel like a TV show. It feels like an extension of the cinematic universe. So I think you should watch it because you'll be better informed about what's going to come up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited for Doctor Strange to come back and Doctor Strange to have a big role in this movie. So that should be, it should be fun. So yeah. So Spider-Man 3 is scheduled to come out in December of this year. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, but there was also some other kind of fun Tom Holland news that came out. And uh, as part of the interviews, he was interviewed about like worst auditions. And he revealed that he actually blew up his own audition for Star Wars A Force Awakens, which this is fascinating, like alternate history. I mean, I don't know if it's quite the uh, as quite as famous or as fascinating as uh, uh, what was his name? Eric something. Eric Stoltz. And uh, Back to the Future versus mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox. But it's kind of interesting, too. Apparently, Tom Holland was four or five auditions deep into interviewing uh, for the role of Finn when um, he started laughing too much at his scene partner and blew his own audition. <laughs> 
this this is fascinating. The idea of Tom Holland as Finn. Yeah, and the, uh, I mean, I, I, I got to say, I think he's justified because he was laughing because his scene partner was like going beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, 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 boop, <laughs> and pretending to be a robot. And uh, yeah, I can understand why he would yeah. find that funny, yeah. you know, with a human droid next to him. And apparently it didn't go over well because the person impersonating the droid was trying really hard to do well. And, and taking it really seriously. I've got to say, I'm completely shocked that Tom Holland would have a hard time keeping a straight face. <laughs> Not at all shocked. Yeah. 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 I, 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 uh, I can't really see him in that role. So I'm not, I'm not too surprised it didn't work out for him there. Well, and I, and, and I look at this, would I rather have Tom Holland as Finn or we would rather have him as Spider-Man? I think he is imminently better as Spider-Man. I think he's, he's much better off um, for how it turned out for him. So, yeah, I think he's pretty happy with what happened. Yeah. So, good for him. And uh, just another case of Star Wars, the new series, making bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it is what it is. All right. So moving on from that one, um, let's talk a little bit about Paramount Plus. So Paramount Plus had a pretty big announcement. Uh, this past week. And uh, if you're, we'll start out with this. If you're not familiar with this, uh, Paramount Plus is a new streaming service, which is basically taking over for CBS All Access. Um, CBS All Access, in my opinion, was very underwhelming as an offering. And really, despite having, in particular, the Star Trek series, uh, really wasn't worth, didn't, in my opinion, wasn't worth keeping around. So this is kind of a rebrand in which uh, it will now feature significantly more content um, from all of the uh, CBS Viacom networks and brands. So you're gonna get significantly more content from this. But the, the big news that's, um, that's coming out of this is that uh, the, some of their big headline movies are going to be headed to Paramount Plus about 45 days after they're in theaters. In particular, this is going to feature Mission Impossible 7 and A Quiet Place 2 are some of the big features that they're doing for this. Um, some of their other movies that are going to come out will be on the service uh, about 30 days after they are scheduled to, uh, to debut in theaters. Uh, so this, this really is giving them um, a legitimate run at... HBO Max, um, Netflix, it's setting them up to position them in similar, in similar vein, which is something that the CBS now really wasn't going to really wasn't going to position them to do. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, uh, on where Paramount Plus sits and, um, and what they're doing so far? Well, when they first announced the change from CBS All Access to Paramount Plus, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard because CBS to me is a much more recognized brand name than Paramount. But given the way they're populating the stuff, I think I see what they were doing, that they were trying to say it's not just CBS-centric, like we're doing more under this larger umbrella. I still am not sure about the name. I think they could have come up with a much better name if they were going to change the name. <laughs> um, 
I've liked CBS All Access from the start because I love Star Trek and they have all the Star Trek. Yes. Um, I mean, we've been watching through Voyager, so I that that alone for me was worth it because I don't own Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you add the Champions League and Europa League, and I feel like I was basically getting that for free because, you know, it's just it currently is not that expensive. No, it might change given the stuff that's going to be added to it. Um, I I think it's really fascinating how we're seeing the shift. Like, I, I don't think this is a temporary shift that we're seeing with movies coming to streaming services sooner. Streaming services that you can access without paying a premium to watch. Because we, we've had movies come on to Vudu and other things like that soon after release, but you had to pay an extra fee to rent them. And to see them come on these services where you can just watch them a month after they debut in the theater, uh, I, I see that as being kind of a fundamental shift and how things are going and kind of maybe a reconciliation to uh, that idea of it releasing in theaters and on digital at the same time. And maybe something that is going to become a lot more normal. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what that does to box office numbers. If this becomes a normal thing, Uh, how do we judge how well movie does? Um, Will it be based on subscribers to these services too? Kind of like how HBO max was looking at the numbers for Wonder Woman. So I'm, I'm uh, very intrigued in how this is all going to play out. Um, but I'm excited to see some of these movies sooner. And it'll, I, the likelihood is that I will see some of these in the theater. And sometimes my frustration when I see a movie in the theater that I really like is, well, I can't watch it again for like six months. But now the ability to be able to watch it just a few weeks later will be really cool. And, um, being able to share it with friends who might not have seen it excuse me, will be nice as well. Sneeze break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what's interesting is to see how the service rolls out. Um, because one of my chief complaints about CBS now was they didn't have the back catalogs for everything. Unlike a service like HBO with all of all of their shows, even their older shows, they had their entire catalogs. But with HBO All Access, you just didn't. It was just some shows you did and some shows you didn't. It was really random. And so I felt like it wasn't quite up to snuff. But uh, apparently Paramount Plus is going to have more than 2,500 films in its library, which is uh, a pretty good amount. So it will be interesting. Um, I think I think the the dimension that's going to be hurt the most in in the way this is turning out are some of your video services like um, Redbox and things of that nature. Because with more stuff coming to the streaming services, also also you know the ability to purchase movies. Now the movie industry is not the same as what has happened in music, where basically you can get every single music on Spotify or, you know, Apple Music. Um, there's still a lot of films that are unavailable that are not on specific streaming services, but I think it's heading that direction. So we shall see. Okay. Um, and last thing with that is Paramount Plus debuts March fourth. So I think they're offering deals if you sign up for a year uh, ahead of the launch. So check out uh, 
Paramount Plus to see if you can get in on one of those deals. All right. So the last story, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we've covered we've covered this extensively in earlier episodes of the podcast. But I thought it was kind of cool. Um, and this is a pretty big step is that New York City is actually going to allow their movie theaters to reopen. And it will be with limited capacity. But this is this is not a small deal that New York City movie theaters will be open. I, we've talked earlier about the, how the movie industry, in particular the theater, relies so heavily on places like New York and Los Angeles to generate revenue. And we're hurting big time when um, neither one of those places was allowing movies to debut. So now that New York is back on board, um, I wonder if that's really gonna open more things up for theaters and, and we're gonna see some more films and more studios um, ready to release their films rather than just simply continuing to push them off. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, well, that's certainly the hope that we're starting to see a turning point in everything. You never know um, what variant might show up around the corner, but it does seem like things are progressing slowly. Obviously, there's still a lot of after effects of what's been going on, still a lot of caution needed, but it's nice to see uh, proactive step amidst the caution and not just uh, hiding away in the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see uh, what kind of effect this has going down into the future. Plus now it just means maybe I'll be more likely to go into New York City. Now that I can <laughs> watch movie. <laughs> I, I do miss New York City. It's been well over a year since I've been there and uh, I'd love to go back. Uh, so, all right, let's, let's move on to our discussion item for tonight. So, um, it started off, this discussion item kind of came to me. I've been wanting to do something like this. And I thought this particular story that we're going to use to lead into this discussion topic was a good, good opportunity to step back and talk about this. And, uh, it was announced this week that, uh, famous electronic duo Daft Punk is calling it quits. Uh, they've been around for almost 30 years, and they've decided that they're gonna they're gonna end their partnership. Stay psych right now. <laughs> yeah. Stay psych. <laughs> so it's what, what bothers me about this is these guys haven't put out an album since 2013. I mean, if you're gonna end it, at least drop an album and then end it. Like seriously, what have you been doing for the last eight years? <laughs> But how this ties into the movie industry is they've put out um, the scores for a couple of movies, one for an older anime movie um, that, had, that was really, really well received. And uh, probably most popularly, they did the incredible soundtrack uh, to Tron Legacy in 2010. Uh, so they have they have quite a, a hand when it comes to uh, to sound and and to to doing movie scores. Uh, so that was, that was really an impetus that I thought that we could talk about our next topic. Um, and along with that, another uh, article that came out that also involves music amongst movies. And that is that Danny Elfman will be scoring uh, Dr. Strange too. And he has a lot of history, both in, uh, doing movie scores and in doing movie scores and superhero movies as he was with Sam Raimi. Uh, he's been, you know, very consistently with Sam Raimi over the years, uh, but he did the original Spider-Man trilogy 
and he was on the score for the original Spider-Man trilogy. Um, so with this news about several composers that have worked on movie scores, I thought we would talk about our favorite movie scores. And I think to kick this off, let's, let's first start out by talking about the difference between the movie soundtrack and a movie score. So Rob, do you want to jump in on, uh, on the difference between the movie soundtrack and the movie score? So I, I don't know very much about music, but I guess I'll, you know, give it a shot. <laughs> uh, For those of you who don't only... know, Rob is extensively gifted in music, has done this for a very long time. In fact, it's part of his job is music. <laughs> and I only majored in it in college. So, you know, I might know a little tiny bit. Yeah. Um, but the difference between a movie soundtrack and a movie score, for those of you who might not know, is the score is strictly instrumental uh, when it comes to like uh, soaring melodies or putting together some classical music maybe uh, into a movie score, usually uh, composed by uh, one, uh, one conductor who will then direct the orchestra as they record it. Um, some, there are some really fascinating uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries, usually uh, as special features with movies. You might see if they have a, a, a big score where you can actually watch them recording the music to the scenes on like a giant video screen. I've seen, I've seen this for many different movies. Like it's a very effective way to get the recording done and gets the, uh, the performers in the mood or in the moment to really feel what the music is supposed to be doing. Um, and then a soundtrack, it, it can include score material, but it's usually more uh, the person who's the director of music would find certain songs that they think line up with, the general feel of the movie or the tone or the era they're going for. Uh, sometimes they try and put songs into a movie that don't belong in that era and make me really mad. Uh, <laughs> I might, I might be thinking about a specific movie called the night's tale that I'll never forget <laughs> for putting, we will rock you in. I can't even talk about it. I'm still so upset. Um <laughs> Uh, another heinous, uh, uh, egregious uh, example of this is the movie uh, about Marie Antoinette that also mm -hmm. did the same thing with some modern music. And I guess it can be pulled off, but they neither of those did it. In I think any the best one was The Great Gatsby. Yeah, yeah, it, it's hard to do. It's they hard. Were trying to, do. to, they were tying in those two specific eras, and I think it worked well. But yeah, it's but, hard. Yeah, as as someone who's putting together the soundtrack, you want to put something together that's coherent. You don't, another thing that I think some soundtracks fall victim to is just trying to smash together a whole bunch of popular songs mm -hmm. into one movie. Uh, one recent one that I can think of that did this really badly was uh, the, the original suicide squad movie mm. that just had a whole bunch of popular songs for no reason whatsoever. That didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so when you're the director of music and you're putting this stuff together, you've got to have a plan. There's got to be a reason why you're doing the things that you're doing. And um, I think when you pull that off, uh, it's very noticeable because I think a lot of the most well-known soundtracks that you would talk about are actually scores mm -hmm. because it's just original thought and original material. So it sticks out more in our minds. Yeah. It's, it's hard to put together a bunch of music, you know, and make it coherent enough that it sticks out as being something special. So 
that's just some of my thoughts on uh, soundtracks versus scores. Yeah. So think more instrumental and more background music when it comes to scores and think of more music with words pulled in something like baby driver is a good example of one that's a soundtrack driven movie where it's, you know, playing various songs that you would have heard on the radio and such. So we're going to focus on scores tonight. Uh, so we thought it'd be fun to talk about our favorite movie scores. So, uh, Rob, I'll let you go first on this one. What is one of your favorite movie scores and why do you like it? So I'm actually going to kind of cheat because mine is the score that's also has elements of a, a soundtrack. Okay. And it's the, the movie Shutter Island. Mm. And I would say that uh, most people probably wouldn't recognize it as a soundtrack. They would hear it almost entirely as a score because most of the pieces on Shutter Island are uh, older instrumental classical music. But then there's also um, there's also a piece uh, when they're looking at the concentration camp that's more of a modern piece. It's by John Cage. That's very like staccato in your face kind of tense uh, feeling. But that's also just instrumental. But the thing that really takes this movie's soundtrack over the top for me is there's an instrumental piece by uh, a composer named Max Richter. And this song is also in the movie Arrival. And the song is called On the Breaking of Daylight. It's at the beginning and ending of Arrival. And it's at the end of Shutter Island. And it's just this beautiful, haunting cello melody that, man, it just gives me chills every time I hear it. I cry most of the times I hear it just because of what I associate it with. But the thing they did in Shutter Island that really, it, it's an achievement. It's just phenomenal. Um, there, there's a singer named Dinah Washington who actually died in the 1960s and they have a recording of her singing a song called this bitter earth and they isolated her vocal track and they put it over top of Max Richter's composed piece and it fits perfectly and it is so haunting it. Um, they played at the end of Shutter Island on the credits and it just ties in so perfectly with the themes of the movie that it's really a very compelling moment. And the cool thing is you hear that melody all throughout the movie, like in the movie Shutter Island, that the melody from On the Breaking of Daylight comes comes in and out like four or five times. And then you hear it at the end when they're rolling the credits with the singing attached to it. And it's just a phenomenal moment. So it's kind of cheating because it's not strictly instrumental, but um, it's just phenomenal work. Uh, so Shutter Island is probably at the top of my list when it comes to my favorite movie soundtrack slash scores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it it begins with the, the impetus that started this whole conversation. That's the Tron Legacy soundtrack. Um, Daft Punk uh, did an unbelievable job with the, the score on this particular movie, in part because they it was the, it was really the perfect mixture of artist and medium because the movie Tron Legacy is about going inside a computer system and what it's like to be inside a computer and the score that they came up with is heavily electronic based and it sounds it sounds very digital it sounds very um 
it has it has computer tones to it. It feels it feels electronic. It feels like you're part of a computer system, and it just conveys that um, that demeanor so well. When especially when you're inside the grid, as it were. Um, but what they did differently, um, it's it should be right up their alley that they can they can do great work on electronic music, considering that's what made them famous. But their work with the orchestra in this is really fantastic. Um, it has really really sweeping tones, and it conveys those lower moments, and it really really builds perfectly well, um, including it hits hard when it needs to hit hard. Um, but just it lines up so perfectly with both the tone of the overall movie and with the theme. It just matches incredibly well. Um, what was what did it for me with this particular one is um, this was one of the first soundtracks that I'm like, I need to listen to this over and over again. Like I need to own this. Um, and this was back before the streaming services were really huge and really got into that. Um, and so this was one of those ones that I'm like, I need to have it. I must have it. So that's that for me, Tron Legacy. Um, and it's still one I listen to. I listened to it while I was working this week. Um, it's it still holds up. It's still a great soundtrack. And uh, and they were perfect for it. I think when it when it comes to a score, like you were saying that there are certain moments in that soundtrack that are kind of just like they're imbued in your mind because you can hear them and you instantly can see where it happened in the movie or mm -hmm. like you can just feel it. And for me, the next one I want to talk about, like, I'm just going to hum a little bit of it. And if you know anything about movies, you'll know instantly what it is. And that is Jurassic Park. Yes. And when you hear that piece of music and that melody line, like when I when I hear that, I instantly see dinosaurs in my head. Like they're just there because they did such a fantastic job of setting the scene with this music for the reveal of we have actual live dinosaurs here in this place that like it's chill. It gives me chills. Um, the soundtrack throughout the whole series is incredible. And it's no surprise that John Williams is involved because John Williams is involved in everything. That's incredible. Apparently uh, sometimes I wish people like John Williams and John Foreman would actually share some of the talent with the rest of the world. That'd be cool. Uh, <laughs> but they're content to just do everything themselves, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we can't complain because they make amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, John Williams in, in Jurassic Park, those, those movies, the original trilogy, uh, there's so many small moments in them musically. And that's, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the Jurassic Park movies, if not all instrumental are very close to being all instrumental when it comes to the music. Yeah. Um, and I think that's impressive because it allows the movie to carry itself the, the thing about music is it's what well, i think its main role in a movie is to tell you how to feel mm -hmm. and when you can combine it with the right moment it can be very effective as a tool and it's what makes 
movies uh, feel like home sometimes are compelling because there's that moment that's created. And just like I said, that one moment where they reveal the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park is one of those. So John Williams for the win. Uh, I think we might be talking about him more before this is over. <laughs> yeah, let's just jump right into the John Williams love train. Um, yeah, I, the next one on my list is going to be Home Alone. Um, I mean, almost anything that was immense and recognizable for a long time had John Williams' name attached to it. Um, he is probably the most legendary movie composer. Um, he's probably the best that's ever existed at his in his his field. Um, not that he's the only one who does great work on this, but his his score for Home Alone is awesome. And I remember when I was watching the uh, movies that made us Home Alone, they they didn't even they kind of joked around and said, oh, yeah, we should get John Williams to do it. And they all just kind of laughed because they're like, yeah, John Williams is going to do this movie, you know, about a bunch of, you know, a kid beating up a bunch of hapless bandits. Yeah, that's a John <laughs> Williams movie. Uh, but they talked to him about it. He was open to it. They showed him the script. He's like, I love it. Let's do it. And without John Williams, I don't know if this film makes it big. This the the what he did with the score on this movie is so fantastic. He has he he and there's several different thematic elements that he brings in. Almost the like like midnight mouse creeping up the steps. Uh, that one, which is instantly recognizable. Plus, you have his unbelievably heartfelt moments um, that go so well with that the well-written script. Um, when those heartfelt moments, the music really, really captures that so well. Um, and his ability to create memorable music. The last time I watched it this past Christmas, that was just one of the things that struck me was how good that soundtrack was and just how that came together. That was an unbelievably important part of that movie. Uh, John Williams has been in a lot of good things. And I think that although some people might feel certain ways about the quality of the uh, prequel trilogy for Star Wars, there's no denying that his score in The Phantom Menace is, mm. I think, one of the best scores in movie history. And this, the single song, The Duel of the Fates, I think makes its own argument for the, that case because, like we talked about, instantly being transported to a moment when you hear something, when you hear the beginning of that song, you see that lightsaber battle in your head right away if you've ever seen the movie because... It's so intense and so built up. And then all of a sudden, it's just this massive moment with this choir in the background singing a foreign language. And it's, it's orchestral. It's huge. It's violent. Um, but also, there's other pieces in the, in the movie. Uh, the one that sticks out to me as also being particularly impressive is when they dive into the water and go to the Gungan city. Um, say what you will about the Gungans and Jar Jar and whether or not they're meaningful in any way whatsoever. But the song as they're going down under the water feels like you're underwater. There's something about the song, the way he wrote and orchestrated it. It feels like it is matching what's happening. And I think that's just really impressive because it's not, I don't think it's easy to do that kind of thing. And he did it. And whenever I hear any song, that was another soundtrack I owned 
on CD before streaming services became huge. And I remember listening to that soundtrack over and over and over again. And I would just visualize the movie happening in front of me as I was listening to it. Yeah. So I'm going to go with one more. And it was, this is tough for me to, to me to pick between these two. So I will say the one and then I will talk about the other one. Um, so the one is the fountain by Clint Mansell, the sound, the score for the fountain. Um, this movie is driven by visuals and by the score. And it was unbelievable. This is another one that I owned on CD that I needed to have. Um, one of the, the founding ones of me listening to um, movie scores uh, on a regular basis was Clint Mansell's The Fountain. So that one cannot be overlooked. But I have to go with Inception and Hans Zimmer um, simply because Hans Zimmer's music in that played an integral role in the actual storyline. Like he actually connected the different pieces of the movie together with his score. And I remember uh, watching the special features and, and hearing some of the stuff that Christopher Nolan was talking about. And he came to Hans, who's worked with him on a lot of his films. And he says, look, Hans, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> Here's what I need from you. I need you to be able to do this. I need this to be able to carry this. And he said, I just put such an incredible weight on Hans to be able to deliver uh, the score that, that's needed. You know, because when you're doing dream within a dream within a dream, uh, on three different levels and each one of those levels you require the music to be able to match and to be able to tell the story and to be able to tell the shift and he said Hans delivered in unbelievable fashion uh, on a personal note with this one I, I have the uh, the Inception soundtrack and I remember one night I was listening to it in my car I was driving home late and I'm listening to the to the Inception soundtrack and I start driving through this construction zone and it's night and I've got all these giant vehicles like moving all around yeah. me and, good, and I've got the, the, the pounding inception soundtrack. I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> this yeah. is weird. I started wigging out a little bit. It was, but it was just, I mean, it was creating an atmosphere for me, a movie like atmosphere for me while I was driving through this construction zone. So it's a power, it's a powerful score. It really is. Uh, for those of you who don't know some of the technical details, I mean, a little technical nerdy on you with the music that uh, there's a French song in the movie that is played mm -hmm. several times. And when they go into the dream within the dream within a dream sequence, it's slowed down a little bit in each version. And the final version when they're in like the deepest level of the dream is like, it's so slowed down. It's almost unrecognizable, but it's the same song. Yeah. And hearing Christopher Nolan talk about that and how they did that because that's that's something I didn't I don't think I recognized right away on my own but then when he said it and I listened to it a few times I was like wow like that's that's just it's like a next level thing it's something that I think very few people would think of and to be able to do it in a way that was coherent with what was happening and still sounded good is really impressive yeah and i will say for me like movie scores have become a bigger and bigger deal to me over the past few years um i work a lot on a computer and and when i'm when i'm in in depth working on something i can't have music um anything that requires me to think about what i'm doing 
I can't have lyrics. I can't have actual spoken word when I'm, when I'm playing it. Um, so I listen to soundtracks and I listen to the scores from a lot of these movies and it's become an integral part of my work environment. And this is where I think the invention of streaming services has really helped this type of music. Because before it was hard to find CDs unless it was the most popular movie. It was hard to find the movie scores. Now you can find all of them on Spotify or on Apple Music. Um, and just thinking that one of the one of the ones I listen to a lot is is from the, the Mr. Robot TV show. Mm. You know, I was told by Spotify that I was in the top one percent of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of um, what's his name. Um, uh, Max something or other, I think uh, I was in, I was like the top 1% of his, uh, of his, his Spotify listeners last year because of how often I listened to it, but it's just, it's done such a, such a good part of, of my work day is listening to movie scores. So I'm, I'm glad to have them. I'm glad to have them around and have access to a lot of them. And it's given me a much greater appreciation for the work of these composers. Man, that, topic of discussion was music to my ears <laughs> i will say one thing i'm hoping to get back to after the pandemic is um occasionally if you live anywhere near a good uh, a good symphony every once in a while they'll put together one of these things where they'll play a popular movie and they'll play the score live um i know the philadelphia orchestra has done this a bunch of times with movies like um like the Lord of the Rings or, uh, or one of the Harry Potter films where they'll, you'll watch the movie there in the, in the, in the theater and they'll play the score live. I've been wanting to go to one of those in forever. I just think that would be a fantastic way to watch a movie. Uh, Hans Zimmer has also gone on tour playing his soundtracks before. So I think if that happens again, we need to find a way to uh, be at that place. Absolutely. And watch that thing. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we got to move on here. Uh, so let's 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 go to our watch list. Uh, so this is movies that we watched over the last week, and we'll briefly talk about a couple of them. Uh, so Rob, give me give me one that you watched last week. Or uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two because they're tied together. And I okay. said last week that I'd watched The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, and this week we watched The Mummy Returns and The Scorpion King. And I don't think I had seen them before, so. It was uh, interesting to see, in my opinion, the quality of the movies slowly decline from The Mummy to The Mummy Returns to The Scorpion King. Uh, I think the box office kind of showed that and the, there were no mummy. There, the, apparently there is a mummy movie that came out in 2008 with Brendan Fraser in that I didn't even know existed. So I don't want to check that out at some point. Um, but yeah, this is the this is the well-known trilogy, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns to The Scorpion King. And like you had said, uh, watching The Mummy Returns, seeing The Rock at the very beginning of the movie, and then he was nowhere until the end of the movie when a CGI spider scorpion version of him showed up that looked nothing like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand why people were not very happy about that. Um, and then uh, it was funny because watching The Scorpion King, the whole time I was watching the movie, I don't know if you remember much about it, but as I was watching it, I was thinking, how is this in any way related to the two mummy movies? Like there's nothing about this that is in any way tied to the mummy movies. And then at the very end, they go, they call him the Scorpion King. And I was like, Oh, so the entire movie was just to know that he was called the Scorpion King. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess. 
Uh-huh. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised. Like, this might be mean, but I'm, I'm like kind of surprised that the the Rock went on to like such great success because to me that was not the best like leading debut I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's not. It was not very impressive. Um, if you haven't seen the movies, I think they're worth watching, but by no means are they paragons of cinema history. Yeah. Um, I'll also talk about one I watched recently that was actually good. Okay. Um, not everyone may have access to this, but if you do have Apple uh, TV Plus, you should watch the movie Greyhound with Tom Hanks, hmm. which is a movie about uh, a group of um, American warships that are headed across the Atlantic Ocean for the Lend-Lease Act era of World War II where we were providing aid to England uh, in the form of uh, basically military weaponry and supplies. And the battalion of American ships had to cross the Atlantic that was being patrolled by German U-boats. And this movie focuses in on like a 36 hour period where they had to cross a part of the ocean where there was no air cover because um the plane's distance ability to fly was limited by their gasoline uh, range. So uh, Tom Hanks plays the commander of this group of like 40 ships that has to cross this. And as they're doing this, merchant ships are coming the other way that they've got to protect as they come through the, their waters. you got to keep tabs on everyone. Um, as it's all happening, the U-boats are calling them over the radio because uh, everyone like, knew each other's frequencies because you're spying on each other so you're trying to figure out what's happening and it was it's just kind of haunting because this is actual fact this happened like the u-boat captain would call this american ship and say uh you're going to see all your friends drown tonight as Hmm. we pick them off one by one yeah and just like tom hanks's character doesn't sleep for like two days straight and you feel you feel it um, as you're watching the movie, just that sense of tension and dread and fear of what might be just under the surface in front of you. I think it does a great job of portraying that sense of dread because you just have no idea what's around you because you can't see it. And I think that's one of the most effective vehicles of fear in a movie, something that you can't see. And, uh, I would say it might be more of a nerd for uh, more of a movie for like historical World War II nerds like me, but it was definitely well executed. And Tom Hanks does a great job as the commander. So if you have Apple TV Plus, I would recommend watching Greyhound. I'm assuming that at some point it will, if not already, be available uh, like on disc or something somewhere else that mm-hmm. you can be able to see it. So, yeah. Um, so there was a number of movies that I watched this week. Um, one of them, I watched uh, an old school, like nineties, uh, a, a quality nineties movie. It was uh, 1997, the saint starring Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue. Um, it was, a, it's a good movie. Um, even though obviously the technology and some of it is clearly very dated. Um, the combination of basically Val Kilmer plays a, a chameleon type character where he is always somebody different. He's a fantastic um, chameleon. He's, he'll one, one moment he's playing a Russian, the next moment he's playing, you know, a heartsick lover. 
Um, he, he does a fantastic job of acting, getting into the different characters that he plays. Um, but basically he's a guy who, who runs around stealing things and that's his job. And he runs into a very naive, but heartfelt woman who has the secret to cold fusion and he steals it from her, but falls in love with her and, and has to try and figure all that out. Uh, but the connection between Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue is very good. Um, the story, um, it's a good like late 90s story uh, where you have, it takes place a lot in Russia where you have that kind of chaotic period of Russia where it was the first decade outside the Soviet Union and, and kind of the chaos that emerges as, as the fall from that. And there was the, the kind of threat that would they maintain democracy or would they head back in the opposite direction as the backdrop for it. Uh, so it's a, it's a quality movie. Um, you can find that one on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, another one I watched, which is highly underrated, is Dread from 2012. Mm. Uh, Carl Urban, Olivia Thirlby. And um, this one, I mean, the, the late 90s one with uh, Sylvester Stallone is kind of like a great bad movie. It's, it's one of those over-the-top apocalyptic action movies that the late 90s was kind of famous for. Uh, but it was it was kind of cartoonishly bad. This one was really really good. Um, I thought the action the action was incredible. Basically, a lot of it takes place. Almost the entire movie takes place within a like the tower of of one of these like superstructure apartment buildings. So it's kind of one of those. I mean, there's been several movies along this line, like uh, Sixteen Blocks. I think was one of them where where you basically, you have two people trying to get from one place to another place without getting killed by every single thing around them. So they, um, Carl Urban plays Dredd and Olivia Thurlby plays his rookie agent who's along with him. They go into make an arrest inside of one of these towers, which is being run by a corrupt drug lord. And she decides that they're going to lock down the tower and try and kill them and prevent them from getting out. So it was basically a tool of survival as they're trying to escape this entire building while being locked down. And uh, it's pretty graphic. There are some moments of really severe violence in this one, uh, but the action is great. I think they actually do a pretty decent job of, of conveying the character of Dread. But I think Olivia Thurlby is fantastic in this movie. I think she's a highly underrated actress and, and then I wish she were in more movies. Um, but she is her character is awesome as you see her evolve from a scared rookie into someone as she builds confidence through uh, her continued survival in the movie. So I think it was fantastic. Have you seen? I don't it? know. If, I, I don't know if you had a chance to see it when it came out. But this was uh, along with Tron, like you had mentioned before. This is one of the few movies that really utilized 3D well. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a great movie in 3D, and. Uh, it's one that I remember watching on my 3D TV when I had one that it was worth actually having the Blu-ray 3D version of because they did a fantastic job with it. Yeah. And it is, it's a very good movie. And Carl Urban is incredible in it for someone who you can't even see his eyes like the entire movie, which is yeah. really hard to do <laughs> mm -hmm. as an actor. But he does a, a really good job. Yeah. And so the last one I'll talk about briefly is uh, Elizabethtown. 
Um, this was a 2005 film with Kirsten Dunst and Orlando Bloom. Um, it's more of, of a uh, romantic drama and actually probably should have been on my list that I produced for uh, romantic movies you both like. Uh, but this is a great example of a movie that's driven by its soundtrack, not by its score. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of really good music that really kind of drives the story. But it's basically a story of a guy who loses billion dollar, billions of dollars for a company. And he's going to try and kill himself and then realizes his father just passed away. And then he has to go to his hometown to take care of everything. And he meets a flight attendant who takes an interest in him. And as he's dealing with his own drama, he kind of falls for her. But it's really, they do a great job of having a genuine connection between the two main characters. Uh, so it's a really, it's a really heartfelt story that I think is, is, is well received. All right, so that is our watch list. And now we're gonna close out a little differently. Instead of talking what? about what we are gonna watch in the next coming week, I'm gonna say, let's each one of us give the people something to watch. What should we tell you to watch this week? So Rob, give the people something to watch. Uh, I, I, I will give you one thing that you should watch this week because we did not talk about it. Um, I, I recommend watching Greyhound, which I already talked about, so I don't think I need to talk about that more. Um, but another movie that I think you should go watch and it's at Redbox, you can get it for like a dollar on DVD or whatever it is, um, is the movie Greenland starring Gerard Butler and I don't know how to say her name correctly and this may be wrong, Marina Baccarin, uh, mm. who was on Firefly, um, plays his wife and it's essentially about the world being destroyed. And there have been a lot of movies about the world being destroyed and asteroids hitting the earth. And most of them have not been <coughs> Armageddon. Um, deep impact. Not good. Uh, but this one, I think, is a notch above those movies because although there are some scenes where you see pieces of the comet crashing into the earth, uh, it's more focused on the human element and the emotion of what's going on as people are starting to become terrified of the world ending because the climax of the movie is a nine mile wide piece of this comet coming down on the earth and creating an extinction level event. Um, so there's this whole idea running through your head as the movie's going on, like, will anyone actually survive this? And I'm not going to spoil it for you. So you're gonna have to watch it yourself. Uh, but I would recommend watching Greenland uh, Gerard Butler that is was supposed to come out in the theaters but um, I don't know if it ever actually did come out in the theater because it was right around the time when theaters shut down so yeah highly recommend watching that one all right so what I'm going to tell everyone to watch this week if you have not seen it watch Minority Report from 2002 uh, fantastic sci-fi film based off a short story from Philip K. Dick who was like the master of sci-fi um, from the literary sense, uh, starring Tom Cruise. This was a really, really good movie. Um, and it's about a, it's basically deals with the idea of predestination as it were. Um, if you could predict when crime is going to happen and arrest people before they commit the crime, is that justified? Cause they technically have not committed a crime. And so it wrestles with, wrestles with that concept especially when um the main leader of pre-crime as it were uh becomes a victim of it so 
Uh, it's really, it's a great movie. It's, it's on IMDb uh, free. So you can access that through either imdb.com or through um, Prime, Amazon Prime. You can, get, uh, you can get that through. So watch Minority Report if you haven't seen it. If you have, definitely worth checking out again. I will co-sign that one. All right. So that is the show for today. Um, hope that you have enjoyed this particular performance. Make sure you rate our podcast, subscribe, leave us comments, let us know that you're out there. And uh, if you have any of your suggestions and we have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to and see our glowing faces. If you should so choose and check out filmforfans.com we've got lots of great content over on the websites until next time enjoy the movies <laughs>